Um, well, my name's Grant, guys. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored Uptown, and I think it is just beautiful to be gathered like this as family. I think like Andy was saying, celebrating Will, celebrating Paul, celebrating the things God is doing here. But also, I just I feel pretty moved this morning just celebrating Harbor City, celebrating what God is doing on the other side, literally about as far as you can go from San Diego, Durban, South Africa. And just, um, I was saying to Alison, who was given a bag of chai by Carmen Vidivian from our church. I think they connected a while ago, weird kind of mug friendship going on, tea friendship going on. And just to see that happening after, the last time you saw it was 2019? 2018. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Well, let me just pray for us this morning and we'll get into today's message. Um, Jesus, I thank you for this beautiful group of people, all in different places in their journeys with you. And we just welcome you here today and ask that you would speak to us all, teach us, lead us, grow us, meet with us, we ask in your name. Amen. So if you're new here today, perfect timing, because we are starting a new series today called About That Life, a series on what it means to actually follow Jesus. And over the next few months, what we're going to do is we're going to be in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which must go down in history as the greatest sermon of all time. It's Jesus' Kingdom Manifesto. It's the first message He preached right at the launch of His ministry, and it is just absolutely incredible. So we've been talking about getting into this for a while now. We're really excited about it. So excited, in fact, that we've got three introductory sermons for you coming up before we even get to Matthew 5 verse 1. So we are pumped. We are building towards a special series. Hashtag momentum. Come on, this is, we're going to get into it. But today is kind of like the prelude. Next week, Andy's got a very special introduction for us, really introducing us to the Sermon on the Mount. And then the week after is intro two or three, the way you want to look at it, talking about what it means to be a disciple before we actually get to Jesus's words in Matthew chapter five. So really what we want to do is set us up well for this. So as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we're prepared. You know, we're we're trusting in Jesus. We want to follow Him so that we can hear and receive from His words and then respond to them well, that we can live as His disciples, as His kingdom citizens here in San Diego today. But today my title is, Who is Jesus? Kind of simple in so many ways. Who is Jesus? We're in our huddle before uh, the gathering started and someone said, that's a great question. And it really is. This is, in some sense, such a simple part of what it means to be a Christian. In another way, such a deep and wide and important and significant topic. Who is Jesus? And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of do a a broad overview of Matthew 1 to 4 as Matthew, the apostle, the ex-tax collector, one of Jesus' closest friends, gives us a bit of an introduction to who he is before we hear Jesus' sermon for ourselves. Are you ready for that? Woo, one little woo, I'll take it. In um, maybe slightly bigger laugh, we can build on the momentum, hashtag momentum, it's happening. But um, maybe in the Clark household, I wanted to let you in on bedtime for August. So our daughter goes to bed around seven, that's the plan at least. Uh, So probably at 22, we start to build towards that. We pour her a glass of moot, which is her word for milk. And we start to read her Bible to her, we pray with her, and we watch Jesus with her on YouTube. And what we found is these really cute one to five minute cartoons uh, telling us a little bit about Jesus and his life and his teaching and about some different Bible stories. So we put that on and we watch it. And it's just really cute. 
And every time it starts, the narrator starts with the same words. So I wanted to read that to you, the script of the intro to these Jesus videos. He says, this is Jesus. And then kind of the video shows Jesus walking along this cartoon character, and he turns and waves at the camera and goes, hey And now my daughter, August, responds and goes, hey She's saying hi to Jesus because she likes this warm character she's being introduced to. The narrator says, this is Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And we get these snapshots of his life and ministry. While Jesus was on earth, he taught everyone about God's love. He healed many people from their sickness. He performed many miracles like calming the storms. And here Jesus is on this little boat in a storm with his disciples. And he kind of flags the, the wind a bit and goes, shush, 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 shush. And the wind stop. It's amazing. And even raised people from the dead. And we've got Jesus in a tomb, a man lying on a stone slab. And he pops up and kind of looks a bit disorientated and then goes, woohoo! And the crowd outside cheer because of this incredible miracle. And then it kind of transitions into that lesson's teaching or moment with Jesus or story or example of him. But every week it starts with those same words. Every night before August goes to bed, she's kind of catechized into this. She's exposed to this. She's baptized into this picture of who Jesus is and what he's like. And she loves it. Every night she's hearing someone say, this is Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, and we love watching her learn and grow in her own kind of age-appropriate discipleship, coming to know a little bit more about him. And then we've got those nights where she goes to bed way too late, and we just don't have time to do this. We want to get her into bed. We want our own time. We want her to sleep. So we say, sorry, August, no Jesus tonight. And she goes, I want Jesus. We're like, no Jesus for you. You can't have any Jesus. And we feel like absolutely terrible parents, but we want to get her down. We feel bad, but we love the, the love she has for these videos. We love that she's loving getting to know about Jesus for herself. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And I thought of a quote by a man named A.W. Tozer. He's a pastor and author from back in the day. And he said this quote you might have heard before. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because that shapes so much about what we think and how we live and the way we respond to one another, the way we process things, the way we respond to Him. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. So today as we come to the question, who is Jesus? It's something similar. Who is Jesus might be the most important question that you ever wrestle with or think about or answer. And I'm hoping today as we go through this together that I give you something of an answer from the Bible and I help you to answer this question or at least answer it better for yourself. Preparing for today, before we even get into Matthew chapters 1 to 4, I was reminded of this encounter that Jesus has with his disciple Peter a few chapters later in Matthew's gospel or biography of Jesus' life. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16 verse 13. And we see this moment that some of you might have even thought about, some of you uh, who know the scriptures well, who maybe have heard this story before, might have thought about, as I said, today we're talking about who is Jesus. So Matthew 16, 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say Jesus is? But he uses the phrase son of man there, which is a direct reference to Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And actually, this was Jesus' favorite term for himself. 
Jesus just called himself the Son of Man. Yeah, I'm the fulfillment of that prophecy about who the Messiah would be, who the promised one of God would be. That is me. Who do people say that I am? And his followers reply and say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus personalizes this question and digs a little bit deeper. And he says this, but you, he asked them, who do you say I am? And in a sense, this is our question today. Who do you say Jesus is? Simon Peter, straight out of the gates, so bold to go first. I'm the kind of person who'd hang back a bit, listen to what everyone else said, then maybe add something at the end. Simon gets in there first, and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds and goes, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I bet Peter felt pretty good about that. He gets an A plus on Jesus's question. You know, he's strutting himself afterwards. All the other disciples hung back. They were quiet. Peter gets in there first, and Jesus goes, that was a great answer, man. I love that. Blessed are you, Peter. Jesus asked them, who do the people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? And that's some of the tension that we come to in a sermon like this today. Who do the people that you work with, the people in your neighborhood, the people you go to gym with, the people around you, the people you were at college with or high school with, who do they say Jesus is? Who do the people of Uptown San Diego say Jesus is? And then who do you say that he is? Maybe just for some of you who are saying, you know, this is actually a question I want to study more. Um, I'd encourage you, read the biographies of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read them slowly, maybe over and over again. Pray them through and ask God to reveal Jesus to you. You could even take a notebook and study and write out things that stand out to you about who he is. If you're more a book person, Encounters with Jesus by Tim Keller, I think is an incredible book where Jesus has 10 encounters with different people through the gospels and we get to see what he's like, how he handles people, what he's like one-on-one. Gives us a picture of the real Jesus and what God is like too. But in Matthew 1 to 4, before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew is preparing us for who Jesus is, and he gives us these snapshots of him for us to start to get to know this Lord, this Savior, this King. So snapshot one, the genealogy of Jesus. If you've got a Bible, can you turn to Matthew 1? This is not going to pop up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. But if you look at this first page in Matthew's gospel, you just see name after name after name after name. This is how it starts. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron and Hezron fathered Aram. And on and on it goes for 17 verses. I'm pretty sure that is one of the most skipped over passages in the New Testament. You come into the New Testament, you're like, "Woo! I want to learn about Jesus. And then you just read this list of names and you're like, no, this is not for me. I'm going to skip on a little bit in the story. And it does come across as pretty boring. You you need to do some work to engage with this. But as you get into this family tree, this this lineage, this history of Jesus's great, great ancestors or predecessors, and as we kind of cross-reference their names in the Old Testament and read their stories, what we see is whether they were famous or not, whether they've got a few verses or a couple of chapters about them, Actually, we see this red thread of salvation and redemption working itself out 
all the way through history and all the way through the scriptures, building towards Jesus. It's an incredible thing. And then we're introduced to him. And in Matthew 1, what we see in such detail in those first 17 verses is that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is a historical figure. Jesus is not a fictional character. He's not a myth. He's not a legend. He was a real man who lived at a real time. And here we see him stuck into human history with these ancestors and mothers and fathers in his story. But Matthew also wants to show us that Jesus is not just a historical figure, that he's so much more than just a man who lived 2,000 years ago. And in Matthew 1 verse 21, this is what we read. She, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This time we're talking about Isaiah. Before Jesus fulfilled Daniel's prophecy, now he's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Pretty wild. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And we go from this very human family tree. I know some of you guys are probably into that. 23 and Me, getting back into your family histories. Where do I come from? What did my family do? All of that. We go from this genealogy into these two divine names for the Lord. The first one, Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua, means the Lord saves. So if that's your name, <laughs> that's your family member's name. It's a reminder of the promise of the kind of God we serve, a savior. And we see in Jesus the manifestation or the embodiment of the salvation plan of God, that God comes down, that he gives us his son to make a way for us to know him. And then we see the second name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you're taking notes and you're trying to answer this question, who is Jesus today? Those are two huge answers for us. He is Jesus, the Lord saves, the salvation plan of God, walking our streets, coming down from heaven to earth to make a way for man to God. He is the Savior. That's snapshot one. What about snapshot two, Jesus' birth? The baby, Jesus, as he's born in Matthew 2, right at the beginning, is called two things. He's called the King of the Jews, and he's called the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. And what we read here, and this is so mind-blowing, is that a bunch of kings, we don't know how many kings, we know three gifts. We don't know how many kings actually came, but a bunch of kings were kind of astrologers, Zoroastrians, worshippers of the stars and planets, and somehow they divined or worked out that there was a king being born who was very significant, and they decided that they were going to travel all the way to where he was to give him gifts and worship him. A few years ago, I did some research on this, and I think it was probably a five-month journey for them. Like, I think just drive down the road, you know, like, oh, two hours, we'll get to Jesus, we'll give him a gift, and we'll go home. This is probably five months of their life that they are traveling to meet this king and then go all the way home afterwards. This is a costly journey. And these kings, however many there were, arrive at this baby, and they bow down and worship him as king. I don't know if you, some of you guys saw on social media that quote about Queen Elizabeth this week. You know, I think it was actually from Queen Victoria, but saying she wished Jesus would come back in her time so that she could put her crown at his feet. These kings traveled for five months with gold, frankincense, and myrrh to put their crowns down at baby Jesus' feet and worship him as king. 
Who is Jesus? He's the king of kings who other kings travel and sacrifice to worship and honor. Snapshot three, the spotlight. John the Baptist is probably Jesus' cousin or a close relative. And basically, he is called by God. I mean, Jesus calls him the greatest prophet to ever live. He's called by God just to prepare the way of the Lord. I mean, as Christians, we're called to the same thing too. We're called to prepare the way of the Lord. But John's entire ministry is shining a spotlight on Jesus. He says in one part, he must increase and I must decrease. Isn't that beautiful? His entire ministry shining a spotlight on Jesus, not on himself. And he preaches a message of repentance He preaches that the Lord is coming and His kingdom is coming. He preaches about judgment and wrath against sin and hypocrisy. But He points people to Jesus saying, He is the one. In John 1 verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John is pointing people to Jesus and saying, He is the Savior. He is the one. I'm not even worthy of untying His shoes but he is the one God has sent to save us from our sin. And John has this privilege of baptizing Jesus. In Matthew 3, we read a little bit about it. This is a pretty well-known passage of scripture if you've been around church for a while. But it says in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And again, this is a profound moment revealing something of God to us. It's this frame in the scriptures where we see God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together in one frame. And the Father spotlights Jesus the Son. A voice from heaven is heard by all who are there saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. If you're answering the question today, who is Jesus? A voice from heaven, Father God, says, this is my beloved son. Snapshot four, the temptation of Jesus. After this high point in Jesus' life, I mean, imagine that happened to you. That would be massive. He's instantly led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Not a great situation. Jesus is tempted. And Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And that should be a huge encouragement to you and I. So it means that Jesus can empathize and sympathize with you and I and our needs and our struggles. He's been there. He's been through it. But the difference is that Jesus overcame the sin that you and I struggle with and fail at. And that means he understands the struggle, but he is the spotless lamb of God who can die for your sins and mine. He can die in our place. He can take that sin on himself so that we can be right before God. And in the wilderness, what happens is Satan comes and tempts Jesus. And he says this twice in verse 3 and verse 6, If you are the Son of God, which is funny because I feel like that was already clarified for us. You know, the, the voice from heaven, my beloved Son, we know this, it's clear. But Satan comes and just plants doubt and deception. If you are, if you are, who is this guy? If he's the son of God, we're not so sure. And I think when I hear that, like the way I'm wired with my weird insecurities and approval idol stuff, that's like a red rag to a bull. (laughs) Maybe some of you are the same. Like, what do you mean if? (laughs) I am the son of, I will prove to you who I am. 
But Jesus doesn't have the same insecurities that I have. You know, he doesn't want to prove himself to earn value in the same way that I do. So Jesus doesn't have to go along with Satan. But what we see here is Satan's strategy and plans. At the end of chapter 3, God affirms, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. In chapter 4, Satan questions this. He's the father of lies. Lying and distortion are his strategy. We see his questions from the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Questioning, challenging who God is and what his word is. Then we see with Jesus this challenge on his identity. Who are you? Are you really the son of God? Prove it. Show yourself. And I want to highlight that because I think those are the two challenges and questions we struggle with. Did God really say? Is that really what God is like? Who are you? Are you really that person? And as we go through the series in the Sermon on the Mount, I think we're going to see more and more the Word of God and the way of God and the identity that we are called to. And the thing is, will we trust in the Word of God or will we be deceived by the lies of our enemy? Did God really say? And when that question comes, what Jesus does is He responds with Scripture. You want to know who Jesus is? Jesus is a big Bible guy. He loves the Scriptures. He loves God's Word. It's inside of Him so that He can respond with it as He deals with different challenges. And this temptation in the desert that Jesus goes through and that he overcomes, he doesn't fall for Satan's challenge, is kind of this moment pointing ahead to a moment on the cross where Jesus will defeat Satan, sin, evil, and death. Jesus is Christus Victor, the one who overcomes the evil one, who overcomes sin and overcomes evil. So with those snapshots in mind, I want to ask, who do you say Jesus is? How would you answer that question today? Back to Peter and Jesus in Matthew 16. Peter's just had this amazing revelation of what Jesus is like. A plus situation, strutting at stuff, he's really encouraged by what's going on. But straight away, things go horribly wrong. Matthew 16 verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. And this always blows my mind. Jesus, a number of times in the Gospels, tells people what he's going to do before he does it. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And often the disciples just don't take this in. They're like, okay, let's move on. But here, there's actually a reaction from Peter. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Getting that one answer right really seems to have gone to Peter's head, right? (laughs) It's really flexing after that. Um, This is just my opinion. It doesn't say this in Matthew 16. But if you're ever in a situation where Jesus says something to you, and your instant response is, he's wrong, I'm going to tell him the right way, there's probably something wrong. For Peter, he misses this, but there should be a red light going off on his dashboard, like danger, danger, pride, pride. This is not a good thing to do. And I look at Peter doing this, and I think how crazy it is that he tells Jesus off and tells him the way, you know, the right way, the way things should go. But I know I do that too, and I'm pretty sure a lot of you in the room do too. We hear Jesus, but we say, I actually know a better way. Peter clearly had in mind a very specific way that the Messiah was going to come and bring his kingdom. 
And we, we've seen already, like here this revelation of who Jesus is, a revelation not from man, but from the Father. God has revealed this to him. He gets it. He's a Christian, but he also assumes a lot about God and what God is like and about the way that God works. So when Jesus says in verse 23, we're going to Jerusalem, Peter's like, my man, come on, we're all in. That's what we're going to do because he's got an idea about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Peter's like, well, of course, Jesus is the coming Messiah. He's coming to bring his kingdom. So we better go to Jerusalem and launch an attack on the Roman garrison and tear them to shreds, slaughter the opposition, take the temple, install Jesus as the Messiah, and then his kingdom will come. And probably it's not just Peter that thought that. Probably the other disciples did too. They're like, great, we're going to Jerusalem. Let's bring this kingdom. Come on, guys. But Jesus tells them the plan he's got. What they think is going to happen in Jerusalem is not going to happen. Instead, Jesus says, in Jerusalem, I am going to suffer. In Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, not kill. In Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, not inflict suffering. In Jerusalem, I'm, I'm going to be conquered, not conquer. And I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day, I will be raised to life. Which goes against everything in Peter's mind and heart about who Jesus is, and what he is here to do. So Jesus lets Peter know he's not a big fan of this plan. He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And that is a strong word. That's, you know, like in the Greek, you don't just kind of water it down. You're like, oh, he was just, you know, friendly banter. This is a rebuke. This is the same word used often of when Jesus is casting a demon out of someone. This is a strong authoritative word. Those of you in the room that like are glass half full, you're the optimist, you're the encouragers. Peter isn't just trying to encourage Jesus here. You know, he doesn't have a gift of encouragement. He's like, come on, Jesus, don't say that. We're with you, not you, man. We're going to get to the end. Don't be so down. That is not what's going on here. This is a moment of gross pride and gross control. And Peter just revealing something really unhealthy inside of himself about what he wants and what he's going to do to get it. And Peter is a big deal when it comes to the disciples. He's one of the 12, one of Jesus' closest friends. He's in the three, him, James, and John have these like VIP backstage passes with Jesus to a whole bunch of things that happen that only they get to see and be a part of. I figure the other nine disciples would be bummed to not be a part of that. But they do, they just have this access to Jesus and what's going on that no one else gets. And Peter probably feels a bit special. You know, this proud part of him, He's like, well, if Jesus is the Messiah and his kingdom is going to come and we're going to overthrow Rome and, you know, we're going to establish his kingdom right in the heart of Jerusalem. I think Peter probably thinks to himself, well, I'm going to get a big promotion. <laughs> this is going to be amazing for me because when Jesus is king, I'm in the three guys. So that means when he's ruling and reigning over everything, I'm going to have a great position as part of his cabinet. I'm going to have like a pay raise. I'm going to have influence, new business cards, power. It's going to be amazing. He sees this is life and life to the full, the good life. He sees Jesus, the Messiah, as his way to get the things that he wants. But when Jesus kind of reveals his plan here, and he says, actually, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer, to be crucified, to be killed in a shameful way. You can imagine Peter instantly like processing. Like, that's not what I thought we were about, guys. <laughs> that's not what I want, because if you're going to die, then I'm probably going to die too. 
if you're going to lose your life and I'm one of your closest followers, it makes sense that maybe I would go through that too. Which probably makes a little bit more sense of Jesus' response in verse 23. Just warning, this is strong. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Jesus says, get behind me, he's really saying to Peter, you're out of your place. You're out of your place, Peter. You're one of my disciples. You should be following your rabbi, not out front leading, not showing the way, not leading the way. Jesus is saying, you're not calling the shots here. I am the Messiah. That word Satan, which is so strong, which I'm sure many of you have struggled with if you've read this before, it means adversary. So Jesus isn't just saying, hey, Peter, I think you are Satan. He's not saying, hey, Peter, I think you're demon-possessed. He's actually saying to him, you are, in this moment, my adversary. You are in my way. Your will is in the will of the will of God, what God is wanting to do. Now, remember, Peter just had this incredible revelation. Peter just crushed Jesus' question. Who am I? You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. A plus Peter. Straight away, we go into the situation where Peter's will and the will of God are in conflict. And Peter's pulling Jesus aside for a little heart to heart and telling him off. Peter is a Christian. Peter is a key leader in the early church. He's one of Jesus' closest followers. But this passage shows us that there's clearly some things in his heart and life that need to be refined and worked out just like in every single one of us in this room. And Jesus is showing us here that some of his best leaders, his best followers, can also get in the way of God, what, it, what God is wanting to do because of stuff inside them, because of stuff that needs to be dealt with, because they've got their mindset on the things of man instead of the things of God. I'm pretty sure that there are many Christians in San Diego and in every part of the world that are in a similar place to this. They've had a true revelation of Jesus. They get it. They know who he is. They could answer that question well, maybe even with scriptures and quotes. They're part of a church. They're serving. They're involved. But they're still choosing their own way over the way of God. They're not following him and not submitting to him as Lord. They know who he is, but they're still on the throne of their lives. And probably all of us go to that sometimes every week. Maybe some of us right now, we know this is me. Peter saw who Jesus was. He's got this incredible revelation, but he still didn't want to go the way that Jesus had for him. He did not want to deny himself, neither do I. He did not want to follow Jesus into some things. And sometimes I don't want to do that either. But Peter in Matthew 16 is too focused on his way, his will, his wants, himself. He's got tunnel vision. Peter has set his mind not on the things of God, but on the things of man. He does not want to go the way of the cross. He doesn't want to go the way of self. And this morning, I kind of want to bring that question to you. Not just who is Jesus. It's an important question. It's one we need to be able to answer. But more than that, is do you have your mind set on the things of God or the things of man? Not just do you know who Jesus is, but are you choosing to follow him wherever he might lead? Have you embraced the way of Jesus, not just embraced who Jesus is? One of the things we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount again and again 
is that Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And it's almost Jesus addressing the ways of the culture and the ways of society and say, I know that this is what you think. I know that this is what you've grown up in. But I say to you, I present to you my way, the way of God. And Jesus is calling us from other ways to his way, from other beliefs to his truth. And he needs to do this. He needs to do this because we are so shaped by the culture we're in. We're so shaped by the air that we breathe. We're so shaped by the water that we swim in that we might know who Jesus is, but we might not actually be following him. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, this is a real trip. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I want to show you something here. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me and be my disciple. And I figure some of them are like, what do you mean if? Like, we've given up everything to follow you. What do you, why, like, we're doing the thing. What do you mean? And I, I know the way I process things. <laughs> Sometimes it takes me a few minutes to, like, get that something's going on. And then I go, hang on, hang on. Can we just rewind to that big thing you said earlier that just went over my head? Can we talk about that? There's been a lot going on. Peter's great, like, revelation of Jesus, the whole get behind me Satan thing. There's a lot going on in Matthew 16. And then Jesus drops this bomb, if anyone wants to follow after me. I'm sure they were just so confused. What do you mean if? We are your disciples, Jesus. But Jesus is teaching them and us an important truth. We need to continually pay attention to our relationship with Jesus. This isn't just a one-off thing. Is he out front leading the way? Or have we kind of moved on from him and we're doing our own thing? Are we following Jesus, our Messiah? Or do we know who he is, but we've gone down our own path? Like Peter, who had his own plan for how things should go. Do we have our mindset on the things of God or the things of man? Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple. For some of you in this room, maybe you're like, well, I've been a disciple for 10 years. But Jesus is still speaking these words to us. If you want to be my disciple, will you take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me? Now, you might notice that the words of Jesus here sound a little bit different to what we hear in our culture all the time. <laughs> Things like, you know, be true to yourself, follow your heart, follow your dreams, you do you, live your truth. Sounds very different to Matthew 16. And also, this verse doesn't necessarily mean that we can't want salvation from Jesus, and that's it. You know, we might say, well, Jesus, you're offering me forgiveness of sins. You're saying you're the Messiah. That sounds great. Fullness of life in you. I'm down for that. I'm down to believe in who you are, but not want to follow you. And that's so easy for us. That actually we would want salvation without wanting to die to self, without wanting to follow him into all the things that he's got for us. And Jesus ends off the section saying this, verse 25 to 26. Whoever would save his life will lose it. What? But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, his life, his self? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus tells us something that just doesn't make sense in line with our culture and what it says to us, that if we want life and life to the full, if we want the things that we're truly after, we can't do it our way. 
We can't go after the things that naturally we would desire or want. We have to trust him and follow him and go after what he has got for us. If you want to save your life and do things your way, you will lose your life. But if you trust me and do things my way, you will find life and life to the full. Guaranteed. Now, I think this is a really hard word. <laughs> this is like a tough love moment with Jesus. And some of you maybe are even feeling that this morning. This is, a, this is a tough love moment. But it's something we need to hear, even though it's hard to hear. I think the reason this is tough is this probably challenges the way all of us have built our lives, at least at some point. And I was building my life towards this thing, building my life after this. And Jesus is saying, you need to tear it down and start again. You need to start from scratch again if you want to follow me. But he also promises us, and this is so counterintuitive. This does not come naturally. This is not common sense. But he also promises that if we will surrender our lives to God and trust in him and follow him, that we will find the life that we truly want, the life and life to the full the good life in him. Does anyone know what cognitive dissonance is? This messes with your brain. <laughs> what Jesus is saying here feels so upside down. It's like so many of those movies we might have watched where this character is living their life a certain way and then they find out life is not the way they thought it was. Anyone watched the Truman Show before? <laughs> oh, come on, I see, I see that hand. Um, <laughs> I probably say that every week, I'm so sorry. Jim Carrey in The Truman Show plays Truman Burbank. And if you don't know the plot, it's like a 25-year-old movie. If you haven't watched it by now, I'm, so, I'm going to ruin it for you. Go watch, block your ears, I don't know. But basically, he's this baby born in a recording studio. The, he becomes reality TV. All of the characters in his life are hired by the studio to play. His mother, his father, his friends, even his wife. So the life that Truman Burbank thinks he has is completely deception. None of it is real. And he's probably into his late 20s, early 30s, enjoying his life when he starts to realize something is off. I can't quite put my finger on it, but something is off here. And he eventually realizes that his entire life has been happening in a studio in Hollywood. They're geniuses. They, they put a fear of water in him and a fear of flying in him, so he'll never want to leave. So he stays in the studio. And right at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, he finds out that this is all fake and he leaves the studio to enter into real life. Now, if you're not a big Jim Carrey fan, there's a lot of movies with this kind of theme. Toy Story, Buzz Lightyear, convinced he's an astronaut. He's done the real deal, but then he finds out I'm actually a toy in Andy's room. Or The Matrix, Neo realizing that everything he thinks is real is just a simulation. I'm not gonna spoil any more movie plots for you, okay? Those are all old, I won't ruin the newest thing. But these are characters living their lives in these narratives or stories until they're confronted by a person or a message who shows them the truth. And when Jesus comes into Judea or San Diego or your life or mine, and he comes with this message, this good news, this gospel about the kingdom of God and the way of the world, he's showing us a different story about ultimate reality. A different story about what is truly true, what is true about us and life and everything. And he comes with this message that he is the king and that everything in time and space and the universe is about him and is centered around him. And he redefines the world and everything in it with him at the center. 
saying that absolutely everything in our lives has to be reimagined, reorientated, rethought through in light of who he is, which is a big deal, a total renovation of our imaginations and lives with Jesus at the center. Now let's just pause for a second <laughs> and take that in. If that's new to you, maybe for some of us this is a fresh reminder, this is a big deal that Jesus changes everything. Jesus doesn't just become an addition to your life, a small add-on where you go, ah, he's pretty good, I'll, I'll throw him in there. Jesus becomes a new center, the, the one we orbit around. He becomes everything. And we can't just leave here and say, okay, let's grab lunch afterwards. We'll talk about House of the Dragon tonight, make some guesses about what's going to happen. We can't just shoot the breeze after this because this is a everything must change kind of message. When we're confronted with Jesus, we can't just stay the same because he is everything. And this is what we're going to be looking into for the next few months as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount. Who Jesus is, his teaching, how he challenges the culture and the world around us, how he calls us to a new way. So you don't have to get this all together today. Say, so, okay, I've got it. My whole life needs to change. I'm going to go out there and be a different person. No, no, no. This is an introduction. As we meet with Jesus and as we see who he is and as we begin to follow him, we realize we're entering into a whole new world. So we don't have to change everything right now, but I do want to leave you with two questions before we finish up. So if you are someone who likes to reflect and pray, you can close your eyes now where you are. But I want to give you maybe two minutes on each of these questions so that this isn't just in your head, but actually you come up with an answer. You can write these down and process these this week. But I'd love you to grapple with this, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether this is new to you or old. The first question is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And the second question is, do you have your mind on the things of God or the things of man? Maybe I could ask the band to come up. Who do you say that Jesus is? And do you have your mind set on the things of God or the things of man? Jesus says, I've done my best to share something about you today. I ask you, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to each one of us more. You have changed my life. And I love you, Lord, and I want to know you more. I'm following you, but I'm following you imp imperfectly. I, I want to follow you more fully. Sometimes my mind is on the things of God, and often my mind is on the things of man. I pray you would help me more and more to think about you and dwell on you focus on you and live for you. I just ask you, Lord, that you would help us to honestly be able to answer those questions. Help us to know Jesus. Help us to know what it means to follow Jesus. And as a church, I pray we would grow strong in these areas.
in your name.